Hello and a very warm welcome to LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. It is the podcast that offers you a behind-the-scenes all-access pass to one of the UK's great symphony orchestras and its musicians, the London Philharmonic Orchestra. In this fourth episode, we're finding out the truth behind what it's like as an orchestral musician working with different conductors. I'm joined by percussionists Keith Miller and Alice Monday, who plays the oboe. Welcome, Alice and Keith. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Yeah, excited to be here. Wonderful. Very good. Thank you, Yolanda. Oh, good to hear you both. Well, let me start with the key question and see how we get on. Who is your favourite conductor? Mm. Alice, can Mm. I ask you that? (laughs) Starting with the hard questions. It's really hard to go straight in. I might revisit it later, but just off the top of your head, if there was like an experience that you had, you thought, I really do. Can't Keith go first and I can think about it. (laughs) All right, then, Keith, I'm going to throw this to you then. Well, I've I've been thinking about it. I've started even making a list. He's way better than me. Because bound to come up with that uh, <laughs> that question and the the answer is the same one as if you said what's your favorite piece of music uh-huh. it depends entirely on the circumstances and some people are good for certain things you know like some music you have favorite music don't you but it depends on the where and when you're experiencing it well, i'm going to delve deeper then as a percussionist what is your favorite piece of music to play it's funny you should ask that <laughs> I'm really getting into because, hard questions now. Yes. I don't have a favourite piece of music because it depends on the conductor. <laughs> I see where this is going, Keith. I like that. All right. It, it's Well, you see, Alice will tell you she has so much more experience of, of playing with more conductors than we do because she'll, she'll often be playing in smaller orchestras. We tend to be mainly playing in the bigger, you know, the big symphonic pieces. Yes, of course. So therefore, I tend to favour um, Mahler, Shostakovich and uh, those sort of big composers as well. So I don't get the chance, for instance, that Alice does have to play smaller chamber music as much at all. So some conductors are good. Our present music director of the orchestra, <laughs> Vladimir Yurovsky, I believe is certainly my favourite conductor at the yeah, moment. Yeah, I'd agree. Wonderful. I'd agree with that as well. And how about new gestures when they step up to the podium? I think some of them are for us, which are very useful. Some of them, I think, are for the audience if they're more concerned about what the audience th- are thinking they're looking like. So, I mean, both serve a purpose in a way, but I think some gestures are not so useful for us, but audiences love. Keith, are there any gestures that I know we're on a podcast and no one can see us, but that you could describe that the audience actually really enjoy when a conductor does it? Well, it's flamboyant, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you're in showbiz yes. as well. So it is what they're doing is, is putting on an act, as Alice says. We do think they practice a lot with in front of a mirror. Yes. So they, of course, they should stand with their back to the mirror, shouldn't they? Of <laughs> that's very true. That's, yes, that's what we're saying. That's what the audience, <laughs> the audience see. But the, the the fact is you get some conductors get better results with small, just small gestures, as long as it's what we are expecting mm. that helps the music to go. Some of them do make rather flamboyant gestures, which add to the excitement for, you know, for a live audience. 
what it does to the actual music once again it, it's a matter of <laughs> what the end result is so you once again you get the variety and have you ever had that experience where you know a conductor is doing a gesture to you but it hasn't translated and uh, you didn't quite get the message <laughs> the more you get to know a conductor the more you might know what they want but there's lots of occasions when you're looking at them and you're trying to do what they're showing and it's not always possible and then you could you could say that's of course if you happen to look up at the conductor because often people say in jest yes what do you think of, of Fred Bloggs that's conducting today? People will say, oh, I, I don't know. I haven't looked up yet. <laughs> How important is eye contact? Because obviously the conductor is there to help direct the orchestra. But if that does happen, a musician doesn't look up. Are they just playing what they feel naturally? or? I, th- I think you've put your finger on it. Absolutely. It's the most important thing. The most important thing, without any shadow of a doubt, that you could give two specific examples. Can we name names, or is, or is does uh, libel and slander come into <laughs> Do this? It. Do well, it. let's go back to Vladimir, or let's continue with Vladimir as well. I think we would all agree eye contact is a hundred percent his way of communicating. Yeah. Whether you're playing or not, very often he's looking ahead or he's looking back, and he he manages to convey pleasure or displeasure or even messages as to what we're supposed to be doing. He does that all the time. And he does it so much that he doesn't... Yes, he can talk a lot from time to time, but he doesn't. a lot of the time he doesn't really need to because that communication is in place all the time. And we do know that he sometimes gets a little worried or upset if he sees players who are not watching him and not making that contact all the time. But I can think of two other conductors who are world-renowned conductors, for want of a better word. Franz Velzemerst... Yes. And Daniel Harding, I would say, who both worked with this orchestra for a time. Velza Must was the music director for four years. And both of them, when they were starting especially, never ever made eye contact at all. Really? I always remember Daniel had a fringe that came down almost over his eyes and he was always looking down or around, but he didn't project, he didn't make that contact. Velza Must was a bit like that at first. He was very diffident, very shy, and it took a while, but obviously it developed. But you, but that was difficult yes. because you found it difficult to communicate with them. And they would always just say, oh, trombones, oboe, and all that sort of thing, without actually looking and, and talking to the people concerned. That is fascinating. So, uh, that was always felt that was a little bit of a barrier. And Alice, do you find that eye contact is good or is it distracting no, for it's, you? No, it's, it's really, really important. I think you can, as a player, you can get quite a lot of confidence from eye contact if you've got an entry coming up and you've got bars rest that you've been counting. If you don't get that, that eye contact, then it can put you off and you think, oh, am I not in the right place? You, you really need it. It's really, really important. As Keith says, Vladimir is... His eye contact is, uh, you can tell so much from that those eyes. Um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, I do think I personally use a lot of my peripheral vision. I'm trying to, to concentrate on people around me as well as the conductor, maybe the leader. Or I do think sometimes the conductors might not realise how much we might be using our peripheral vision. So it might not look like we're exactly looking at them, but we are actually. <laughs> so it's a skill that they would not know that we would be using, I think. Yeah. I first saw an orchestra perform on the television. I must have been about six. And I remember vividly at that moment, my mum saying to me, did you know that the musicians have to look at their music as well as look at the conductor at the same time? And I couldn't get my mind around it. Have you played in an orchestra with conductors? I have, yes. I've played in an orchestra with conductors. Well, and also I am a band leader. So I yes. understand that frustration also. Yes. Of, I know that a piano solo is coming. 
coming up. I'm looking yes. at the pianist, ready to nod and do my eyes because I'm using my hands and mouth, and he's just not yes, looking up. Yes, and I'm thinking, yes. I'm trying to tell you, you know. So actually, yes. on both sides yes. of the fields, I understand the frustrations. Both, both sides. That's great. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can an orchestra play without a conductor? Really and truthfully, I think it depends. Mostly. Yes, we we could watching the leader or or just the sort of connections we have with each other. Yes, but it depends on what it is really. I think and, and sure. the repertoire. I think sometimes you do need a conductor. <laughs> sometimes we <laughs> sometimes we can do it by ourselves, but it's probably better with a conductor on the whole. Better with a conductor. Well, often a conductor at a rehearsal will walk to the back of the hall to hear what the balance is like, to hear what the sound is like, and we carry on without him. Every time they come back on the stage, that's much better without me, isn't it? (laughs) Because you know what they're going to want, and you just just carry on playing, unless it's something frightfully complicated rhythmically. It sort of chugs along. But when the conductor comes back on, he adds that certain shape to it and guidance and, and, and force... Is there a piece of music that you can remember that really needs a conductor to hold it all together? Oh, Alice, do you think I was going to say The Rise of Spring? That's what I was going to say. It's the one that comes to mind, isn't it? <laughs> and why is that? Why is it's that, incredibly Alice? rhythmical and so much that needs to be together and you just really need a rhythmic beat to, to visually see that beat so that we can get everything together that's so it's such a rhythmical piece. It's all about the rhythm. Well, I, I was I was just reminded of two incidents, both of which I happened to be there. One where the conductor was doing the Rite of Spring without a score, and it went very very badly no. wrong. In what way? Uh, just before the final dance, a big silence, a big pause. Then it goes into this frantic dance where it, it just has to be extremely accurate. Once you know the piece, actually, it, it's logical. But he was doing it without a score, and his mind went to blank. The pedal notes in the, the timpani and the, the basses mainly that actually set the, the, the bass and everyone else does squawks and so on on top of it. And they stepped into the breach right away, and they could see it was drifting. So suddenly, boom, boom, ah. boom, boom. And, and, and they made it happen. They made it. He, he was just... Uh, He's just waving. <laughs> eventually caught up by the end. But you could see the panic on his face. I cannot quite... I would say if if I knew if I remembered who it was, but I can't remember. It was one of the one of the big names, um, you know, who would normally do it very well. But when they do it without a score, I do think you're fairly terrified because you can see them thinking, or oh, uh, what's coming next. Yeah. There was one exception. You've got Marzell and some of those conductors who uh, Barenboim actually is still extremely good. They've got photographic memories, and they know exactly what it's all about. They know the rehearsal numbers. They know everything. They know every entry so they can do it and you've got the confidence there but a lot of the others can't do it or shouldn't do it rather and it makes you quite quite worried about it that flamboyancy that you see sometimes in concerts does that help because I'm thinking if the gesture is wider is it as accurate for you as the musician Alice I personally think bigger gestures are not so accurate but it depends it depends that's probably bit rubbish thing to say actually maybe delete that bit (laughs) (laughs) that's right and do you know of any conductors that have a very unusual style that you've had to adapt to Keith what Alice is saying is is right you don't want big flapping gestures you want something that's accurate and you can latch onto Mm. a famous Russian conductor sadly deceased is Rostodvensky he's diminutive in stature he's very small 
but he has an extremely long baton and he's of, of the Russian school, which is uh, there's one professor in Moscow that's taught all the best Russian conductors. And his stick technique is absolutely superb, but he uses it very, very rarely. Oh. Most of the time he stands doing literally nothing. He may start it off and then he just lets the orchestra play. Halfway through a rehearsal, he would say, I think that's uh, enough for today. Go away, we don't need the rehearsals tomorrow. And we will often end up doing concerts with very little rehearsal. Some of the bits not rehearsed at all. But he had got the technique that he wouldn't do much at all, but when it was necessary, he'd just give the guiding, the guiding light, set it on the right path again. Yes. But, well, you had to just listen and stick together and then he would just, just, just guide you in the right way. And that, that was absolutely superb. He didn't have to flap around and so on. He had the technique just to make sure that we knew what was necessary. It reminds me of an analogy of driving. I love racing driving. Uh, and when I got to the track, I remember my first track day, the instructor saying to me, let the car drive itself. And we all know a car can't drive itself. But instead of fighting the car and trying to move the car, let the car move and just direct it. And actually you then get a better flow, better lines going around the track. And it sounds like a similar kind of approach. Let the orchestra, who of course they knew, know the music, they know each other, let them play and then just gently direct. And actually there would be less sort that's, of restrictions then, I guess. That's a very good analogy. Yeah, yeah. I think there's actually... Um, working with uh, Valery Gergiev, another Russian. He's got a very distinctive style and audiences, interestingly, often say, how do you follow him? But having I worked with him a fair bit, he he's very easy to follow. You know exactly where he wants you to play and have done incredibly rhythmical things with things like Messian's Tarangalila and but such minimal, minimal movement. But you know exactly what he wants. It's amazing, really. That's interesting what, when you mention him, because another subject we often talk about is the baton, whether the conductors need the baton. The one I was talking about had a very long baton, mm -hmm. which was, was lovely to watch. Mm. His technique was lovely. Gergiev either has uh, nothing, nothing at all, or his finger or a matchstick yeah, or something. Yeah, it's a toothpick he often uses, isn't a, it? Yeah. A toothpick. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but it doesn't matter as long as you, you, you can tell what, 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 he's, yeah. what he's planning to do, you know? Uh, actually, Vladimir had an interesting choice once. I'm not sure you're in this piece, Keith. We did, we unusually did a Baroque piece by, I think it's called Les Le Mans by Rebel. Were you in that? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, um, no, and I it know. It was Baroque, so we were a little bit out of our comfort zone and Vladimir had the wind standing. It was all a little bit, it was very difficult. And he decided to conduct with what was called a jingling Johnny, which is, oh, it yes. was used yes, in yes, Baroque yes, time, yes. Uh, like Handel used it. it to conduct and so did Lily. Yes. And what it, is it? it's like a large staff with sort of bells on top of it. I think actually, Keith, I mean, maybe more of a percussion department. It is, yeah, and he'd yeah, sort yeah. of um, yeah, yeah. use it to keep time. I mean, Lily, uh, when he used it in Baroque times, actually stabbed himself in the foot and uh, died of gangrene from it a few months later. Oh, so, no, no. so this was a risky, risky yeah. choice from Vladimir. We were sort of a little bit dubious about what he was going to do with it. And in the concert, uh, he got so enthusiastic about it, the jingling bit fell off into the violas. And, no. and Vladimir, was, it was just a particularly difficult part for me, I have to say, and I was trying not to laugh. Uh, but, um, the jingling bit fell into the violas. Cyril, who was there at the time, he's now left the orchestra, grabbed it, thought that Vladimir was being encouraging when he was sort of doing this gesture, so started waving it around and put his viola down and joining in. But Vladimir actually wanted the bells back, he so back. he ended up getting back. The whole thing was... I mean, we carried on. I think it was also live on Radio 3, possibly. It was... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I do think the, the choice of um, implement, to, the, the conductor's ease, is important. <laughs> and these things that should be That is one of my favourite stories so far. <laughs> 
<laughs> the Jingling Johnny. I will never forget the yes. saga of the Jingling Johnny. <laughs> and I also wonder, Keith, about placement. So you are a lot further away from the conductor than Alice is. Do you have to sort of make allowances for those gestures and for, for those directions? Because obviously they'll get to you, I guess, a few milliseconds later. Well, they, they absolutely do. We play on the festival hall stage. Well, <laughs> we should be playing festival hall stage most of the time. But also we spend a quarter of the year in the pit at Glyndebourne Opera House. Oh. So the orchestra is set up completely differently there because it's a long, thin area that we've got. So you, that, that, that's the biggest example. When we're there, we're much nearer the conductor, yes. but at, a, at, at an extreme angle. So that's very different. Conductors often forget there are people at the sides of the orchestra outside his, uh, outside his vision in a yes. way. So you can't always see what he's doing, that, that sort of thing. But in the average concert hall, when we're at the back, we've got two things to concentrate on. One is what the conductor's doing, obviously, and being with him, but also the time delay. I think, uh, Alice, correct me if I'm wrong, but on, on a downbeat, in general, the wind players have to breathe. So there's a... I'm exaggerating, obviously, yes. but there's a sort of bang like that. The strings, as a rule, I'm generalising, wait for the wind to come in. Then they come in, so they're even behind the wind. And we're on percussion. We hit something. You don't have a lot of leeway. You've got to hit it, and if you're not careful, you'll be ahead of, of everyone else. On the other hand, if you leave it too late, you'll be behind the strings, which is almost unthinkable, it's of course. It's a science. So it's a constant uh, uh, juggle, yes. you know, just, just to hear it. And you're doing that by watching, but by listening as well. And every orchestra does play slightly differently. Some orchestras play absolutely dead on the mm. beat. Others sort of fade into it a bit more and so on. And that's all something you have to, you, have to adapt. you know, you have to, to adapt. Exactly. And yes, then yeah. so as an oboe then, Alice, or an oboist, <laughs> when you hear the beat, you've heard Keith play. Are you listening to him? Are you watching the conductor? Or are you somewhere in between? I think it's a combination of everything. And it's something that you sort of osmose and learn to do. It's it's uh, something possibly a bit subconscious again, a bit like our peripheral vision. We obviously have to anticipate the beat like Keith says, we have to breathe. So we're always kind of thinking ahead anyway, I think, just yes. to make sure we take the correct kind of breath in order to come in at the same time. But yeah, we're watching a lot, listening. I think at the moment it's even more difficult because we're doing, we're filming our performances online. Yes. And uh, we're all, because of social distancing, we're sat at least two metres apart. So the orchestra is a fairly small orchestra, but we are spread and that we're into the audience of Festival Hall, we're into the choir stalls. We are look like we're massive, but we're actually much smaller. So at the moment, it's, a, it's another adjustment that we're having to make because obviously we're even more behind the beat yes. than normal because we're further back. So it's a constantly changing thing and it takes a little while to get used to. At the beginning of a rehearsal, the first time you're meeting the conductor, is there a lot of direction and talking about where they want to go? Well, I would, I would say that there often is but we prefer it where there is not. Oh. The worst the worst conductors are the ones that keep stopping and starting and say, oh, it's on, it's on, it's on, it's on. The best conductors are the ones that play through the piece first. So especially if it's a relatively unfamiliar piece, you get to know what you're actually dealing with. So you've got some idea of, of what you're faced with. Then they'll go through it. Then you know roughly what the piece is all about. Then they go back to the beginning and start working on it in more detail. Yes. 
but the ones that are constantly stopping and starting it, it can it, it never gets anywhere you never get to know the flow of the piece so with some conductors it's been cut up so much into small bits for the rehearsals that when you get to the concert you realize you've never actually played the piece through <laughs> at all you get some conductors don't need to say anything because they're so good yeah. at conducting they don't have to say much others just maybe have to talk because it's the only way they can get their ideas through so as always somewhere in the middle is the uh you know, what we should aim for, I think. And you've both painted a splendid picture of this relationship between the conductor and the orchestra. I'm going to add another component to that wonderful recipe now, when a soloist comes to join you. So, Alice, what is it like then when a soloist comes in? Do you see a change in the conductor and how they approach the direction? Yeah, I think it's another skill that some of them have and some of them don't. Obviously, a soloist is coming in with their own idea of how a piece should go. And if they both, the conductor and the soloist, agree on that, then things go smoothly. But sometimes they don't. So sometimes it can cause a bit of friction. In a hierarchy, who has the final say when that Mm, happens? That's (laughs) a tricky one, isn't it? Uh, it, I mean, it should be the soloist, but I think at the end of the day... Probably the conductor ends up having the final trump card. What do you think, Keith? Yeah, it depends on the personality, doesn't it, of of the conductor. Some will force their personality on it. I can remember Mazur, a German conductor, recently deceased as well. He had been in a previous life a jazz pianist, oh. allegedly. It seemed unlikely, but that's what he said. And he was conducting a piece with a soloist. Yes, that's right, with soloist. Uh, Rhapsody in Blue. Oh, yeah, yes. It must have been Rhapsody in Blue. So he had some ideas of how it should go, and the soloist, who should be nameless, had his own ideas how it should go. And they fell out so badly that at the end of the rehearsal, Mazur said, Mr. Fred Bloggs, he said, you're a wonderful pianist, but why do you play everything so fast? I will never work with you ever again. <laughs> oh, no. He said that in front of the orchestra. In front of the orchestra, wow. And and he never did. And Alice is going to spend a long time trying to guess who that was. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of our listeners will too. (laughs) Wow. And do you think that, uh, you know, especially for the orchestra, you want to have a harmonious feeling? That's something that should have been said backstage, do you think? You, yes, yes, exactly. So, yes. But sometimes the passions, I suppose, get aroused, you know. Is there a conductor that you would really, really love to work with, Alice? I think, it, well, it's not going to happen, but I never worked with Tenshtet and I really would have loved to have played Marla with him. It's something that the orchestra talks about a lot and um, it's, it's obviously not going to happen now, but, um, sure, but uh, it's something that I would have loved to have, have experienced, which I never will, sadly. But Oh, and into the future, is there anybody that you've seen, even if, you know, this is a blue sky thinking uh, that you that the orchestra could invite down? Who would you think? We're constantly looking for sort of new talent. Um, yes. So it's difficult. So you do see a lot of um, conductors come in that are new talent that are not that exciting to work with. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to see into the future, but I would love one to come along. <laughs> to the budding conductor who may be listening to this podcast and sort of has taken these wonderful nuggets of information of what it what's happening within the orchestra, what are some of these sort of tips that you could share with them as they go and approach an orchestra uh, during a rehearsal? I think a really clear beat and rhythm is um, something which we don't always see. And integrity, I would say. <laughs> integrity and, and um, really knowing what they're doing with the music and not being affected by other elements which may be coming in. 
there's two things that we all dislike in the orchestra, I think. You occasionally have a conductor's competition. You play for that. And sometimes we have composers' competitions as well, or a series of composers who are experimenting. And, you know, we, we give them a platform or somebody else puts on a conducting competition. We're part of that. Those are absolutely dreadful <laughs> to play for because you, you sit through often the same piece being, you know, by some conductors who... It's so difficult to say that some, that's going to be somebody of the future. This orchestra has got a very good reputation for discovering conductors. I'm not saying we actually discovered Bernard Heitink, the Dutch conductor, who was just... It just started at the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam, but he was very young. He was a young, diffident Dutchman, and we invited him to London. We all got on so well. We made him, effectively, our longest-running principal conductor for many years, and a, a marvellous relationship formed. But he wasn't that well-known at the time. And another conductor we discovered was Simon Rattle. We gave him his first concerts at the uh, Festival Hall, did children's concerts, he did various other concerts as well, and he's gone on to be one of the top conductors in the world. At the time, there was just that something that we thought, this, this, and it worked well with our orchestra. Mm. But what it boils down to is it's so difficult to define. If, if you say what's a good, just say what's a good conductor, it, it's impossible to mm. say. You can't say to a young conductor, you must do this or you must not do that. I would like Alice to get in front of the next young conductor we have and say what she just said. Yeah. <laughs> but if they don't have the personality yes. to get it over to the orchestra, and it's something you can't really learn, is it? Or, or you can't really teach. George Schulte was a, a principal conductor for some years. He was a, a Hungarian and he was very passionate. He was temperamental. He could also be very highly strung. He couldn't really conduct. He didn't know how to beat four in a bar. It seemed mm. that way. He just had his own technique. But it was his personality that made it work. But you couldn't teach someone that at all. It, it's something, is it a cliche to say you've either got it or you haven't? And um, as Alice said, really, the, the, there aren't that many that we see coming up that have got that, that, that you think he's going to be a star, he or she. Do you get to socialise with the conductors or are they very separate to, to the rest of the orchestra? Alice, before you say anything, I can just say, well, I can, I can think, think of at least three conductors that we know very well who are all on their second or third wives that they have met in the orchestra. Oh, then you socialise plenty. <laughs> they'll, they'll cut that out if, 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 it, if it's deemed... <laughs> but after, after but a concert, um, a, a musician has told me very case. much about sort of the, the wonderful socialising afterwards, you know, your refreshments after the concerts and sort of speaking to each yes. other. Well, Is the conductor involved yes. in that or do they sort of go to their dressing room and they're done? It depends on the conductor, but I think the very best conductors are the ones which put on the receptions, of course. Ah. <laughs> yes. some, of the, yes. some of them are very, very generous and they do often, when we're on tour, they'll sometimes put on receptions and lovely buffets and drinks or whatever. Not all of them. The LPO have a, a notorious Christmas party. Vladimir definitely always likes to try and attend that. In fact, he, I think he played the piano at one of them and Tem Tempo, our trombonist, yeah, yeah. did some duetting with him. And Tempo oh, was singing. Spoken to Tempo, yes. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of social life. I, personally, I don't that much, but some people do. Do you, Keith? It varies a lot. I mean, I can remember the old style conductors used to have shorty. He had a bus just to get from the airport terminal to get on the plane. 
he had his own special bus. He would sit in it, a maestro with his retinue, with his entourage and so on. It was definitely the maestro. And then we would, you know, make our own way kind of thing. It, it is different nowadays. Some people are naturally gregarious, I suppose you could say. Others just go their own way. Going back a bit, Andre Previn, for instance, always used to like to sit on the orchestra bus on tour. He was definitely one of the boys. And you get some conductors that... It's a difficult one to say because sometimes being one of the boys is fine, but conductors do have to keep a certain degree of of authority. Yes. So when it comes to the crunch and they say, oh, I would like it to go this way, it's a difficult one to do. And once again, some are extremely good at that, others aren't. The run of conductors that we have today are marvellous. They're extremely friendly. They will sit downstairs in the, at the coffee, if you, could, <laughs> if you can find a coffee bar, and just talk on Vladimir's case about the music of course but whatever they they are certainly part of the the group rather than standoffish maestros Thank you very much to the both of you for sharing all of those anecdotes and letting us know what it's like, that relationship between the conductor and the orchestra. Keith Miller and Alice Monday, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We've got to do it all again now, haven't we? Uh, Yes. This is LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. And thanks so much to Keith Miller and Alice Monday for their fantastic insights into the life of an LPO player. Do remember that you can stream all the LPO's current concerts on Marquee TV. Just go to lpo.uk forward slash autumn 20 and you can watch each concert free for seven days. You can subscribe to the podcast, rate, review, tell a friend, do it all and you should, and get involved in the conversation. You'll find all the links in the description of this podcast and using the hashtag OffStagePod on your social media platform of choice. Thanks so much for listening and do join me for the next episode, which we're calling Swapping Seats. <laughs>